When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a special summer tour edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. On today's episode, I'm talking with the legendary bluegrass musician Del McCurry. Del's illustrious career began in 1963 when the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, asked him to join his band, and the rest is history. Almost 60 years later, Dell is still playing shows, releasing albums, and performing with everyone from Vince Gill to Billy Strings. Today, we'll talk about the return of Dell Fest, his latest album, Almost Proud, his hope for the future of bluegrass, and much, much more. Dell McCurry, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, Dell, where am I reaching you right now? Hendersonville, Tennessee which is just about 20 minutes north of Nashville. Well, I want to ask you about growing up. I know you grew up in a musical family. What did your mother teach you about music? Well, you know, she actually never taught me anything. By the time I came along, you know, she's pretty busy. She had three kids before me, (laughs) (laughs) and she actually didn't play much. Now, she did play piano in church. If she got a minute, in the evening, you know, she might play the harmonica, and she played guitar enough to uh, show my oldest brother the chords. So it did kind of start with your mom, in a way. It actually did, because when I was about nine, my oldest brother showed me the chords on a guitar. I actually learned more from him than anybody, and I was really not into it that much until he started buying records. What were some of the first songs that he taught you? Most of the songs he was singing were from the Grand Ole Opry, like Ernest Tubb, <laughs> Roy Acuff, and Bill Monroe. Sure. Because we had a radio and listened to the Grand Ole Opry every Saturday night, you know. So, Dell, you were playing with Bill Monroe at a pretty young age, and I think you were only on the road with him for a year or two. Yeah, just a year, exactly. From February 63 to February 64. <laughs> What did you take away from that experience? I mean, at your age, that must have made an awfully big impression on you to be traveling around and performing with a bluegrass legend like that. Yes, I guess I learned more from his example. He never would teach you anything. I just kind of watch him and I had to sing with him. I had to sing lead for him. I was a banjo player until that point. And he said, I need a guitar player and and a lead singer. And I thought, oh, no, what, does he want me to do this? (laughs) So I went completely from one instrument and singing to another, you know, because before I went with him, I was a tenor singer, and I sang all parts with bands I had been in. 
I knew parts, singing parts. I don't know, for some reason, I could just pick them out. But I wasn't interested in singing. I was more interested in banjo because I'd heard Earl Scruggs when I was 11 years old. And, man, I said, that's it right there. Now, what, whatever that guy's doing, <laughs> this, 11, this 11-year-old kid thinks he's going to do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> which I did for about 10 years. So the first date I played with him was in New York City on banjo. But he still didn't have a lead singer, and he wanted a lead singer more than a banjo player. <laughs> so he put me on guitar and singing lead, and it was a challenge, and I was up for it, you know. <laughs> you sure were. Well, I want to ask you about your voice, because you have this incredibly distinctive voice. Was that something that other folks in your family had? I mean, did your brother have a voice like that or your mom? Yes. Now, I can remember my dad singing in church, just standing beside him when I was just a kid. And I can remember his voice. He had he had a good voice. But like I said, he was not interested in playing or singing. It's just that he could sing good. But my mother was the main influence. She had a good voice, really. She was like a mountain singer because she was from the mountains of western north carolina there she'd sing songs like barbara allen all mm. 16 verses of it <laughs> <laughs> she knew all those old ballads she knew them and could sing them yeah so dell your mom had six kids to take care of is that right that's right mm-hmm. so she must have been doing some cooking at some point or maybe it was your dad who was doing the cooking but somebody had to be she did all the cooking, man. It seemed like she'd cook one meal and then wash the dishes, and there wasn't no time she'd start the next one, you know? <laughs> plus, plus, I guess she was putting diapers on kids and washing their faces and all this. You know how that goes. What were some of your favorite things that she made? She made the best cornbread and soup beans. We call them soup beans. It was pinto beans and green beans. Of course, she had a garden. A lot of times we'd eat cornbread and milk. Now, I, I never could drink buttermilk, but she was on a farm. She had a churn, and I'd help her do that. I think half of my sisters and brothers liked buttermilk. The others wouldn't touch it, and I was one that wouldn't touch it. I liked what they call sweet milk, which is just regular milk from the cow, you know? <laughs> wow. Boy, now man. you just go pick it all, pick it up at the store. That's right. Just go to go go to Kroger, and there it is. <laughs> Somebody in that store must have milked that cow. I don't know who it was. <laughs> uh. Well, Dell. So you worked for a sawmill, I believe, and then a logging company yeah. after you got married. And I'm wondering if some of those years of hard work helped you in your songwriting. You know, it probably did, and, and although I don't class myself as a true songwriter. <laughs> when I think of a songwriter, I think of a guy that gets up in, this morning. He gets up, and he thinks he's got this song in his head, and he writes it down. When I first started recording records, I had to look for songs. Sometimes I'd have enough for almost to do a record with, and I'd have to, I'd think, i got to write something. So that's how I'd write. I was forced to. I'm just forced into writing. And sometimes I'd have an idea and sometimes I wouldn't. I'd just sit down and write something down on a piece of paper, you know, and get started that way. But before, we grew up on a farm and worked hard, you know. And Bill Monroe wanted you to work hard. He was the type of guy. He was that kind of guy. When you got on stage, 
He just wanted you to work hard. He didn't say, now do this like this or sing this like that or play this guitar run here. He never told me anything about that. But I found out that I could play with the man. That's what I was afraid of. He was the father of this music. <laughs> and it kind of worried me, you know. I wonder if I'd play with him or sing with him. But both of those things worked out great. I could sing great with him and play with him. I drove bus for him while I was working. He never had a bus until sometime in 1963, and he found out I had drove a dump truck. And he told me, I want to buy a bus, because a lot of the Opry acts by then were getting buses. Yeah. So he called me up one time and he said, I want you to go with me and look at a bus. Well, we went to Johnny Wright and Kitty Wells. They had two buses. He said, now, we just came back from L.A. in that bus, the old bus, but we bought this new bus, and we got to get rid of the old bus. So Bill bought it, and I was the guy who was going to drive it. <laughs> so you are a bluegrass legend, and you've inspired so many bluegrass musicians along the way, and you've really been a champion of this music for such a long time. And you've kept it relevant. And I'm just wondering how you would define bluegrass music to someone who really doesn't know it or understand it. Boy, I guess it, I could say it is hard to define, although back when Bill was with all those other acts like Roy Cuff and Ernest Tubb, and I think what separated Bill and this music from other music was he was a great tenor singer. And he could yodel. He learned his yodeling from Jimmy Rogers because he recorded a lot of those early numbers. And I think by accident, I know he was trying new things in the beginning. He had a accordion player in the band at one time. He recorded with an electric guitar at one time. He hired a guy named Lester Flatt, who was a lead singer from here in Sparta, Tennessee, and uh, they had a banjo player who played the old-time way, who like drop thumb or two-finger, you know. And so this guy named Earl Scruggs visited the Opry one time, and he was back there playing. And told Lester, he said, there's a banjo player. It's in my dressing room. I want you to listen to him. I want you to see what you think about it, because he put a lot of faith in it. And he wasn't interested in another banjo guy, you know. But he went anyway. And when he heard Earl play, Earl played something like Sally Gooden, or I don't know what it was. And when he got halfway through that tune, Lester turned to Bill and said, hire him. <laughs> He'd never heard nothing like this. <laughs> of course, nobody else had either. <laughs> and, it, and of course, they had a fiddle player. He hired this fiddle player from Florida. His name is Chubby Wise. And Chubby played in Dixieland bands. He didn't know a thing about bluegrass. But he came up here and Somehow he got a job with Bill Monroe, and Chubby told me one time, he said, Bill Monroe taught me how to play songs on my fiddle. He said, now you're the only instrument that can sustain a note like a voice can in this music that we play. And he said, you can play every note I sing, and Chubby thought, well, that's not possible. But he proved him right. He was the first bluegrass fiddler, Chubby Wise, from Florida. Wow. And Earl Scruggs, banjo player from North Carolina. And Lester Platt was a lead singer from Tennessee. And, of course, Bill from Kentucky. So they were from all different parts of the country, but they could come together, and it's just classic stuff. Yeah, we're still listening to it today. Right. 
Well, Dell, I want to ask you about your new album called Almost Proud, which is just wonderful. And I love how the title track starts out with this guy looking back on his life and some of the mistakes that he made. <laughs> Tell me about that. What was it about that song that really resonated with you and made you want to name the album after it? Well, thanks for the compliment. Eric Gibson wrote that. Eric said, man, I got to write a song for that record. I got to have a song on that record. <laughs> so he wrote that. And it just so happened I did like the song. So we put it on there. And when you do a record myself, I'm not thinking of a title for the record. It's just the furthest thing from my mind. I'm just working on songs. And before I got the thing done, my manager said, we want to call that Almost Proud. And I said, why? <laughs> well, I don't know. He said, yeah, that just fits you. so that's kind of the way it came about you know the title and it was a good song i can relate to it's from the country (laughs) (laughs) well you also wrote a couple songs on this album and there's one called running wild that is a great song that disappeared for a long time after it was written and then it was kind of rediscovered can you tell me how that song kind of resurfaced and well, found its way on the album? I'll go back a little further than that, Sid. When the pandemic hit, I was playing the Grand Ole Opry on a Tuesday night, March 9th, 2020. Well, they were talking that night about this is getting bad. Well, they found out the next day everything was gone, man. <laughs> and the band just had to sit around and do nothing. So I thought, I, I had this box. People send me demos all year, and there's a lot of songwriters in this town. So they'll send demos, and I just, being on the road, I don't have time to listen to them. So uh, I thought, I'll get that box of records out and just see what songs in there. There was a lot of songs, man. I found about 26 songs in this batch that I would be willing to record if I had to. And so uh, my grandson and my son, they said, well, look, Dad, we can get you a tape machine. It'll be easy to operate, and we got plenty of good mics here. Just plug one of them in, and they set it all up for me, and all I had to do was push a button. If I got a song in the key I like and the tempo and all like that, I could put it on there. I put these 26 songs on a tape, and the way it was, we used to do a lot of pre-production when I'd do an album. Since these boys have a band, they're on the road, they're a lot busier now, and I don't want to waste their time a lot of times, so I finally decided what I'll do. Is I'll just, like I said, I get the song to where I can sing it, where it suits me good and all like that. We'll just go in the studio and let them learn whatever it is they need to learn there, right there in the studio. So it takes a little more time to do a record, but it's easier on them because I don't have to have rehearsals with them, you know. Well, it sure came out great. It's a wonderful record and it's so fun. And I love the energy of that song (laughs) in particular, that running wild. It just comes out with a bunch of guitar and it's just great thank you man you're running wild you're running wild you made me sad for a little while but listen babe the time will come for me to say unfaithful one well you know and another thing while this process was going on i was inspired to write a couple and i think i wrote those two that one and 
forget the other one title now, the other one that I wrote, but but I got two on there that I did write from the batch. Oh, they're just great. Well, I, I sure am glad it found its way onto this record. <laughs> I'll be back with more from the great Del McCurry after the break. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Del McCurry. Well, Del, I want to ask you about your festival, Del Fest, which I think you've had to cancel the last couple of years because of the pandemic, and you got the festival coming back. What does it mean to have that back on the calendar? Well, you know, it means a lot to me because I'm always looking forward to that. Like you said, we missed two years. The first year was canceled completely. I mean, that was it. And then the next year, we decided, well, we might have it in May. Well, my manager, he keeps up with everything. And he's the idea guy and all like that. That's why I've done all these recordings with all these different people. He comes up, he'll say, now I want you to record with this band. They're interested. They want you to do this. Well, I, th- I can sing with those guys. <laughs> it don't matter. Go ahead and try it. Well, I, like I said, I'm always up for a challenge. So anyway, he had it set that we would do the second year. Well, time got closer and closer, and then they said, ah, we can't do that in May. Let's move it to September. So we moved it up to September because it was getting better and getting better. And then just before September, it started getting bad and bad again, you know? Oh, yeah. So what we did for all the folks in that community, which they are kind of disheartened too, just like I am, because they depend on us being there now because of the hotels, motels, and restaurants. They do really good when we do our festivals. So we thought we've got to do something for the local folks. So we went up there in September on a day that I was up in PA somewhere and Virginia, I think I was playing two days up there and we set a date where we could go to Cumberland and that's right in the middle of that community. And they got a park there and do a free show for all of the people there because we felt sorry for them. And anyway, that's what we did then. When it started getting bad and we knew we couldn't have a festival in September, we thought we'd just do that. And that's what we did last September. And then, well, it's looking good now. I don't know how long it's going to last. <laughs> Better knock <laughs> on something. <laughs> yeah, I got it right here. <laughs> well, you know, Dell, you've played so many festivals over the years. I mean, everything from Jazz Fest to Bonnaroo. What kind of reception do you get when you are bringing this old-time bluegrass music to such a young audience well you know we've got a lot of young fans and that's what i can never figure my own self you know i just can't figure (laughs) that out (laughs) but but we played that bonnaroo now i I gotta give ronnie credit for that because it wasn't my manager's idea or my booking agent at the time of the first bonnaroo ronnie said dad we gotta play that and i said wow what is it (laughs) I never heard of such a thing, you know. (laughs) He said, that's going to be big. So he told our manager, look, Stan, we've got to play that Bonnaroo. We flew home from California and was going to be here and then play it that Sunday. I don't know how they ever booked it, but they did. They booked it. (laughs) And, And so 
the news was, if you don't go early, you're not even going to get in the place because I-24 is blocked up with traffic. This is Friday, you know, like in Saturday, Thursday, Friday. And so Sunday morning, man, we get up real early after flying from California home and we get in this bus and go down there. Nothing. There wasn't a soul around nowhere. You just turn right off of the interstate and go there and holiday in and register. You had to do that. And what it was, everybody was already there. We didn't have to worry yes. about traffic. Because <laughs> we played it. The, we played the last day, and we were in a tent. I remember that. And we started to play, and people started gathering around. And God, after a while, I mean, they were everywhere, and they were requesting songs. It was so loud that they would put the name of a song, write it on something and hold it up for me to do, you know, a song that I had recorded. And <laughs> uh, and it kind of surprised me. <laughs> but, you know, before this, Fish recorded one of my songs and we went up and played their big festival up there. And there's 70,000 people there. 77,000, actually. I got, I remember that now. And we had done, played a lot of the jam bands out in Colorado, you know, and I mean, yeah. play dates with them. And so a lot of the younger folks got to know us through all these young bands. And so, <laughs> but it's still a surprise, you know. <laughs> and they love those old songs that I did recorded. Well, I know you met Jerry Garcia back in the day. So it's all kind of coming back around. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it is, you know. When I was with Bill Monroe, that is, we played a place called Ashgrove in Hollywood. We played it two weeks one time and a, a week another time. So Jerry told me, he said, you know, I was there. I watched those shows. And he said, I, I would have liked to have been a bluegrass boy, but I was bashful and I was ashamed to come up and talk to Bill Monroe. And I said, boy, I wish you had because our banjo player quit right in the middle of a... Of a, a <laughs> He flew back to Boston. <laughs> Here we are in California with no banjo player, you know. And Bill Monroe asked me, he said, uh, uh, do you know anybody we can get out here? I said, uh, no, I don't know nobody. <laughs> and so if we'd have knew about Garcia, there you go. We'd have had a banjo player right instantly, you see. <laughs> you sure would have. Things would have worked out differently for everybody. It would have, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, Dale, I just got one more question for you. What are some of your hopes for bluegrass music when you look to the future? Well, you know, I think it's in good hands. I really do. It's a lot better. You know, when I started music, it was kind of like a local music. Of course, Bill Monroe was big and Lester Platt and Earl Scruggs, but the popularity just wasn't there, you know, like, well, rock and roll, man. All the kids in high school, when I was in high school, that's a long time ago. But they all were listening to Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and all like that. But I'd already heard Earl Scruggs, and man, I was ruined for life. <laughs> <laughs> Me and a lot of other guys like J.D. Crow and Sonny Osborne. And <laughs> when we heard Earl Scruggs, that was it. You know, just, I don't know, just clicked. But these days, there's been things happen, you know, like that movie and several things that have raised the music up and made it more popular. And, you know, a lot of the country, there's been a lot of big country singers, stars that got their training in bluegrass when they were young. 
And it's such a great art form, I think. It's not easy to play. You know, bluegrass instruments, you don't have much sustain. You got to be working them, buddy. You got to get work at it right out of them, those instruments. And, and of course, the singing, you know, is there's a lot of trio singing, duet singing in bluegrass where usually other genres of music, it's just got the lead singers up front. And you might hear somebody way back there singing a part. But you don't know what he's doing, you know. <laughs> and it's just it's a different sound for folks, you know. Well, I know you recorded something with Billy Strings, and he's a real talented young artist coming along. He really, and... Yes, he really is. You know, I'll tell you what, I've been playing, you know, you know, David Grisman? Sure. Okay, we call him the dog, you know. <laughs> Me and the dog, <laughs> we played the city winery. And my booking agent said, I got it another act that's just like you guys. It's a guitar and a singer and a mandolin player and a singer. And he said that I want to get him to open for you guys. And so that's the first time I heard him. And he had a partner then, just the two of them. And I thought, boy, this kid, I didn't get to hear him. I really didn't get to hear him in Chicago, but we played another date in Cleveland at a place, I forget the name of it. And they were opening there too. So I got a little chance where I could go somewhere and kind of see him and hear him a little bit where nobody'd see me because <laughs> you get distracted in the audience, you know. And so I went and listened, watched, and I thought, that kid's an entertainer. <laughs> he could do it all. You know, he could sing, he could play the guitar, he could lead the guitar, and he entertained the people, you know. <laughs> and, of course, his partner was a lot older than him, but he just wasn't the musician that Billy was. <laughs> and... So I told my booking agent, and he came. Well, what happened then? Billy Strings come to my festival, and I got two grandsons that play guitars, and they're just young. They're in their early 20s. And my one grandson, he told me one evening there, he said, you know what? I stayed up all night last night. He said, I was up when the sun come up. He said, me and that Billy Strings and Evan, we're all playing guitars all night long until the sun came up here. And I said, you mean Billy Strings is here? He said, oh, yeah, we played all night with him. <laughs> Just jamming, you know. And so my manager got to hear him, and he took him on. And God, and that rest is history. Not my manager, my booking agent. I mean, that guy's just, he's on fire now. <laughs> well, bluegrass is in good hands for a lot of reasons. It is. <laughs> it, and it's on account of a lot of the, the good musicians. There's always good musicians, you know, that come along. A lot of times what makes a good musician is if they get with a professional band when they're young, when real early, because they get set in their ways if they get up to, say, 30. So they get set in their own ways. The timing and all that is messed up a lot of times. But if they get, and, and that's, that's the way Billy, his dad played guitar, and he, he learned to play under his dad. And his dad's a great guitar player. Billy's dad is. And anyway, but if they get with a, a good band when they're young, they'll uh, develop real quick. Man, they learn so fast, you know. <laughs> well, you have inspired a lot of them. And Del McCurry, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. 
Hey, I like and I love biscuits and jam too. <laughs> Forgot to tell you, my mom, my mom made them biscuits or whole cakes. She'd squeeze them biscuits out, you know, and put them in there. And then if she had a bunch left over, <laughs> she'd just make a big patty and put it in a frying pan and put it in the oven. <laughs> Call it a whole cake. <laughs> and she always made homemade jam, your apple butter. Oh Lord, we could go on on, couldn't we? well i love that it's been a privilege talking to you Dell. thanks so much same here sid (laughs) thanks for listening to my conversation with Dell mccurry you can check out Dell mccurry band's latest album almost proud wherever you get music and you can visit dellmccurryband.com for summer tour dates social media and more Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Make sure to come back here next Tuesday for my conversation with the Mississippi vocal trio, Chapel Heart. We'll see you then.